Well, I hope you're enjoying our Christmas celebration. I know I am uh, back behind. And then last night, I sat right down on the front row, just great, great stuff, just having a great time. And really, this is the kind of music that we, we get to hear every Sunday. I mean, it's just great, great stuff from our music team, and they're just knocking out of the park uh, today, just uh, really, really enjoying it. And Christmas Eve, t- tonight, Christmas Eve, I remember as a kid, you know, Chris, do you remember all the joy Christmas, I mean, all the anticipation? I remember one time when, when we were kids and my, my brothers and I, we found out that in some families, they open their presents on Christmas Eve. So we let our parents know, hey, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, and then, and then we reduced our expectations by saying, we think we should be able to open at least one present. I don't remember that getting a whole lot of traction with our parents, but you know, we were there, we were trying, we were trying to make that happen. And I don't know what, what signals uh, that it's Christmas time in your life. You know, I think for some people, maybe it's when they clear Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving, we're kind of, who are we thankful to? Well, actually, we're thankful to God, and then that sort of start. Or, or maybe it's Black Friday, you know, the next day, it's all the shopping. I mean, Christmas shopping, it's on, and, uh, or, or whatever it is. Or maybe it's Christmas Eve, and you're a little late to the party, but that's okay. You know, whatever it signals you to start thinking, wow, let's focus on what Christ has done. He was born into the world for us. What signals the coming of Christ for Christmas in the Bible actually goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And it actually goes all the way back to creation, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you remember what's going on there, there there's a curse that's happened because of sin in the garden. And, and anyway, it's, it's told to Eve, that from her offspring, from her heritage, will come one someday who will crush the head of Satan. And that's really the first promise of Christmas, that Messiah would one day come. And then that promise kept going all through the centuries For example, then God chose Abraham, and Abraham had a family, and then they ended up in Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they became enslaved for 400 years, and they became a nation in Egypt, a nation within a nation. And then they went, uh, wandered in the desert, went into the promised land, and then there were the time of the judges, and they still had this promise. One is coming, the Messiah, who will be our king. Then the people decided they wanted a king, and so there was the time of kings and the time of prophets, and all that started happening. After the time of kings, we learned that, hey, this Messiah, and we kept learning more and more about the coming one, and everybody was waiting, and hey, this Messiah, he will be from the line of David. And then we found out from the prophets that there will actually be a second person that will come with the Messiah, preceding the Messiah, a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way. And then not only that, we found out he would be born in Bethlehem. And then not only that, we realized that there is a way in the Bible to count down the years to know exactly when the coming of the Messiah would be. And scholars of the Old Testament could have known that. But then there were 400 years of silence, where God stopped sending his prophets. This is the time between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 
the ending of the old, the beginning of the new, 400 years. There were no prophets from God. And people were still waiting. They knew more about the Messiah, but it was like, when God, when will you come? When will the Messiah come? When will he deliver us? And then during this time, people started losing faith, thinking maybe we're not worthy for him to come. Other people started focusing in on the Messiah as a purely political leader and deliverer. And, and D- Jesus had to deal with that when he came. But after 400 years of silence, there was a, pro- uh, I'm sorry, a priest that was picked in Jerusalem. And, and you just kind of got to know the context, but there are thousands of priests that served in the temple. And, uh, and every day they would go in one priest would go in to light incense right before the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred place inside the temple building. So rarely did anybody go in, and then only once would somebody go in past this curtain of the Holy Holies. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the daily lighting of the incense was right there by the curtain of the Holy Holies. They didn't go in, but every day they went up to that curtain and they lit incense. And they drew the priests by lot. And after 400 years of silence, the priest that drew the lot was named Zacharias. He was the one. And so that was the greatest honor of his life because most priests served their entire lifetime, never got to do this. And then he went in. When he went in, something happened. He saw, a, he saw an angel who identified himself as Gabriel, and Gabriel said to him, You and your wife, you have been praying for a child for many years, and I'm here to tell you, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, okay, well, we were praying that for many years, but now, how's that going to happen? It's impossible. He goes, I'm an old man, and my wife is a... And then he catches himself, and you can read this in Luke, it says, is advanced in years also. And then Gabriel says, well, because you didn't believe, because you think it's impossible, you will not be able to speak until your son is born. And when he's born, you will give him the name John. And sure enough, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant with child. Six months later, six months into her pregnancy, this same angel named Gabriel showed up to somebody else. And her name was Mary and said, you're going to have a son. And she said, okay, but I'm only engaged. I've never known a man. And Gabriel says to her, hey, with God, anything is possible. With God, this will be possible. And so she believed, and then she became pregnant and gave birth to Jesus, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, the birth of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus came and 30 years after his birth began his public ministry that only lasted three years, he's changed the world. That was three years of his teaching. When he came, he wasn't what people expected. They wanted a political leader. They wanted uh, somebody that was kind of in their image. And Jesus came and he wrecked the halls. That's our series. I mean, he just kind of wrecked everybody's expectations. The first thing he did is he wrecked religion. We talked about that last Sunday. But Jesus was also born to wreck us. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Last Sunday, I, I told a story 
of something that happened with a cousin. Uh, I have a cousin, Jay, in Colorado, and when we were teenagers, our family went out to the lake. And this kind of involves an outhouse. It's kind of a messy story. While I was telling that story, my mom was watching live from Colorado. And one of my brothers was also with her watching live with his, his wife. And as soon as I brought up that we were at this lake in Colorado, my brother Monty and my mom at the same time said out loud, oh no, not the outhouse story. Surely he's not going to tell that. So actually, last night I told a different story, a story about skiing a slope called Shag Nasty. And I was going to tell that tonight, but then everybody said, no, you got to tell the outhouse story. So which is it? Shag, okay, the outhouse. I'm not even going to get it. Next time I'm telling Shag Nasty. But anyway, this the outhouse. So we're there at this lake. And we kind of, it's a 4th of July uh, celebration. We're with our cousins. We kind of have this lake all to ourselves. And we have fireworks. My uncle had a boat. We're skiing. We're just having a great time. Well, my cousin Jay somehow got his hands on some big firecrackers called M80s. And these were like thick and they had a fuse in the side of them. And rumor had it, four of these equaled one stick of dynamite. So we were looking around for something to blow up like any teenage teenager would do, right? And so we realized that, okay, if four of them are a stick of dynamite, we tried to get four of them where we could, you know, twist the fuses together where they go off at the same time, but we couldn't do it. But we could get three to kind of line up and we could twist the fuses where we knew they would go off at the same time. So we had this bomb, three M80s twisted together, and we're looking for something to blow up. And then we see this outhouse, kind of a state park outhouse. And it's one of those block buildings with a concrete floor, and it has no door on it. It's kind of where you go in, and then you turn, and you go in, and then you turn again. There's no running water. There's just a stool there with a lid. And so we go in thinking, all right, let's shut the lid. We'll, drop, we'll light this, drop it down, and we'll see if it blows the lid open. And so that's a great idea. So we get there, we light it, the three M80s, we drop it down the hole, we slam the lid shut, we run out of there, and we kind of wait, and we're waiting for the explosion. We hear this, bonk! It was loud, but it was kind of weird. It was not the explosion sound that we were expecting, just bonk! And so we ran to see, did it blow the lid open? Well, Jay's faster than I am, so he gets there first, and I'm right behind him. He goes down, he turns down, and then about the second turn, as, we're gonna, as I'm going to see the toilet, Jay has turned around, and he's crawling to get past me. And I look, and the outhouse is wrecked. Above the toilet is a cone of brown hanging from the ceiling this big, <laughs> dripping into the toilet. All over the rest of the ceiling and the walls and the floors are blobs of brown and dead flies. Everywhere. It is a mess. A mess. And so we're going, wow. Those things are great. You know, we, but we're going, wow. We're in trouble. So we take off. So we leave. We go to a whole nother place as far away as we could legitimately get from the family to kind of do our own thing, you know, shooting some fireworks off. Well, then the inevitable happens. I don't know which one, but one of our dads went to the toilet. This was not good news for us. And even though there were a bunch of cousins running around, all of a sudden they're calling for Jay and I. Kevin! Jay! And we're like, oh, no. And so we get there, and they tell us, you've got to clean this up. 
And there's no running water, so we have to get buckets, go down to the lake. You know, this thing's about 100 yards from the lake. Get buckets full of water, carry it up to the outhouse, and then slosh them up onto the ceiling, stuff splattering on all the walls, and just kind of keep sloshing it until it kind of slowly washes out off of the concrete and into the ground. It was a mess. Why am I telling that? Because just like Jay and I, yeah, I don't know why I'm telling, but <laughs> just like Jay and I wrecked that outhouse, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ came to wreck us, and He didn't need dynamite to do it. He wrecked us with His righteousness, and He really wrecked us in three ways that I want to talk about. First of all, Jesus was born to wreck our concept of good. Jesus was born to wreck our concept of good. And he does that by his righteousness. For example, during Jesus' ministry, during that three and a half years, several people came up to him during that time, and ask the most important question. It's the question that all of us should ask if Jesus were here this morning. It's the most important question for us. And they would ask Jesus, because it happened several times, Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven? Or Jesus, what must I do to be saved from the penalty of my sin, is what they mean when they say that. And same thing happens in Luke 18. That's what we're looking at today an event that's recorded by three gospel writers. One of them was an eyewitness, Matthew, also Mark, also Luke. And Luke is recording this in Luke 18, 18, and I want to pick it up there, okay? So this guy comes and asks this most important question, Luke 18, 18. A ruler, and just so you don't get the wrong impression here, here the Greek word for ruler is really talking about a community leader, a civic leader, not like a king. He's just a well-respected leader in the community. A, a ruler, civic leader, questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And now when Jesus answers him, he starts off with a twist that's very interesting. Here's what he says. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Boom, right there, right there, right at the beginning of Jesus' answer with a twist, he is confronting our concept of good. It starts immediately. Now, this is significant, and it's significant for us today especially. Because in our culture today, if, if you talk to anybody about Jesus, this is probably the main pushback on God, and, the, and you've all heard it, and it goes like this. If God is all-powerful, and God is good, then how can God allow bad things or suffering to happen to good people? If God is all-powerful and God is good, then how could God allow bad things to happen to good people? people. Now, the honest answer to this is simply this. That has only happened once in all of human history. 
Only one time did something bad happen to someone good. Because Jesus had it right at the beginning. Why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God. Jesus saying that is God in flesh. But the other guy doesn't know that. The question we should be asking, oh, and the one time that happened in history is when Jesus Christ was killed, tortured to death, to pay our sin penalty. He was the only good or pure or righteous person to walk this planet, and something terrible, the worst thing that ever happened in the universe, happened to him. Our creator was tortured to death. He allowed that to happen. That's the worst thing that's ever happened, and he did it for the best news that we can hear. He did it for all of our benefit. The question that we should be asking in our culture is why do good things happen to bad people like all of us? But we don't ask that. And the reason we don't ask that in our culture is because we've convinced ourselves that we are pretty good and we deserve a good life. And if something really, really bad happens to us, then it's somebody else's fault and that's God not doing his job. But that's just a fairy tale. God tells us that we're all morally flawed, you and me. And the real question is, well, then why, why, did, why does anything good ever happen to us? Because we're morally flawed people. And so that's what's happening in this exchange. And, and the trouble is, the reason that we think that we're pretty good is we constantly misunderstanding the concept of goodness, we think we're good because we compare ourselves to other people all the time. And I think even when we do that, we're comparing ourselves to people that we know and people that aren't so great, you know, and people have issues because we, we all have issues. And then we come out looking fairly good by comparison. But do you hear what Jesus is saying? Just as he starts his interchange, he's going to say a lot more. But just at the very beginning, he's implying some things. One of them is this. Hey, if we want a really a true understanding of goodness, a true concept of goodness, then we need to, and we want to measure ourselves truly how good we are, there's only two ways to do that. One is we look at the law of the Old Testament, God's standard of goodness and how we're doing against that. And the easiest way to do that is think back to the Ten Commandments. Maybe you can remember those, maybe you don't know those, but you can look at that and see how you measure up. And I'll just, I'm here to tell you, none of us measure up very well. The other way you could do it is you can short circuit that and just, just compare yourself to Jesus because he's the only good one. That's what he just said. Compare yourself to Jesus and see, and, and there's probably nobody in here thinking, oh yeah, me and Jesus, we tight. We're the same. Yeah, I'm just like him. See, we don't compare ourselves to the right people. So when the guy says this, Jesus pushes back. And the way Jesus pushes back to him is with this test of goodness. Because he is wrecking this guy's concept of goodness. Jesus pushes back with what we call the good person test. And for those of you who don't know what I mean by that, some people in our church know this. Sometimes when I talked about 
to people about Jesus, I'll just say, you know, I'll get a conversation, go, hey, you think you're a good person? And most people say, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm a pretty good guy. And then I'll say, well, how do you know? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm just a pretty good guy just compared to other people. Then I'll say, do you realize that there's a standard of goodness that's over 3,000 years old? And they go, what? I'll say, yeah, there's a standard of goodness, a good person test that's over 3,000 years old. Would you like to take that test? And they're like, now their curiosity, you know, okay, yeah. And it's the Ten Commandments. You know, usually I start with the easy ones. Have you ever lied? Well, you mean ever lied? Yeah, ever lied. Yeah. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever one day or one minute of your life failed to honor your father and your mother? Have you ever committed adultery? Oh, and just to let you know, the greatest teacher that ever walked the planet said that if you lust after somebody in your heart, you've basically committed the sin of adultery. You just haven't done it. And then people will say, oh, Have you ever murdered somebody? No, no, I haven't murdered anybody. Okay, but just know this, the greatest teacher that ever walked the planet also said in his most famous sermon, he said, hey, if you hate anybody in your heart, it's the same sin as murder. You just don't have the guts to kill them. And we go, oh. So Jesus pushes back and he basically gives this guy a version of the good person test. And it doesn't take long for us to figure out we failed the test, usually. Next verse, verse 20. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this young ruler, we find out he's rich. Rich young ruler guy says, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. This to me is amazing. First of all, Jesus is genius because Jesus gets right past this guy's argument and he just kind of goes in a very nice way, because he's doing it for the guy's benefit. He just goes for the throat. He goes right past all that. And think about it. Jesus has just told this guy, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. And three seconds later, this guy says, yeah, and me too. Because Jesus, what about all these commandments? You got to keep the commandments. Yeah, I've kept all the commandments. No one's good except God. Yeah, I know, Jesus. And me too. I get it. And and he's wrong. And so Jesus then, when he says, hey, I've done that, which he hasn't. And Jesus wants to help him understand that he hasn't. So Jesus, who up to this point hasn't even mentioned the first four commandments, or the tenth, but He's kind of focused on the second half, but even more important is the first half of the law that relates to our relationship with God rather than the second half, which is our relation to man. And he's never even mentioned the most important command, which is commandment number one. But rather than Jesus confronting, well, what about commandment number one? He does it in a genius way. He says, okay, you've kept the commandments, so you're a commandment keeper. Okay, sell all your possessions, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow me. 
And what Jesus is doing when he does that, he's saying, God is not first in your life, violation of the number one commandment. You think he is, but he's not, because your money is more important to you. This is one of those stories where a lot of non-believers will push back against us Christians. You know, you guys, you're, uh, you know, hypocrites, or you're not, you know, Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to the poor and you'll go to heaven. Is that really what Jesus is saying here? Yeah, that's what it says. That's what it says. But Jesus' whole point, you've sort of missed it. Because we don't keep the commandments. And some people say, well, right here it says, if you do this, if you sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, you're guaranteed heaven. Is that what he's saying? Number one, if he's saying that, that's a lot easier for somebody who just has like $10 to their name, right? Okay, here's my 10. I'm in! But, but we know that's not what he's saying, because that would be something that we could do. How do we know that's not what he's saying? Well, one way is the whole point of his argument, but another way is he actually meets up with another rich guy in the very next chapter, Luke 19. This rich guy's name, Zacchaeus, we know his name. This rich guy, unlike the rich young ruler who has a great reputation and is wealthy, this is a bad guy. He's a tax collector. He's a collaborator with Rome. He's with the enemy. He's collecting taxes for the oppressors, and this guy's rich. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house in Jericho. And after they spend some time together and a meal together, this guy, Zacchaeus, says, Behold, half of all my wealth, half of everything I have, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them out of. So, did this guy get a better deal? Than the rich young ruler, this guy only had to sell half his stuff and give to the poor. But he's in, but this other guy had to sell. No, that's not the point. And Jesus didn't tell this guy he had to sell anything. This guy just did it. And by the way, Jesus said, when he was there at the house and that guy made the proclamation, Zacchaeus did, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Jesus is saying, this guy gets it. And then Jesus kind of throws in an interesting twist. He says, for I have come to save the lost. I've come to save the people who know they're messed up. I've come to the people who know they need a physician. I've come to the poor in spirit, is the way he starts off his most famous sermon. The people who know that they've got issues, that know they're messed up. So what's going on here? Hey, Jesus came to wreck our confidence in our own goodness. We think if we do these things and live the right way that we're okay with God and Jesus. The whole Bible is explaining to us, no, we are not good people. No, there's nothing we can do to earn heaven. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, that is the main theme of the Bible. We cannot earn our salvation by doing good things. We are totally dependent on God's mercy and his outside help. That's why Jesus had to come because there's no hope for us any other way. And then Jesus came, the only righteous person to ever walk the planet, the only truly holy, truly righteous, truly good, 
And then he voluntarily allowed himself to die for us in order to pay our sin penalty. And he's the only one qualified to do it because he's the only one that doesn't have his own sin to pay for. And the way we get that, Scripture says, is through faith or putting our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And here's what I'm telling you. It's not unusual to be raised in a Christian family and never really understand the entire simple message of the Bible, which is that you cannot be good. We're all messed up. We all have issues. That's why Jesus had to come and die for our sins, and he's our only hope. And the only way that we are credited with his goodness is if we simply believe. It's a gift that we get, we receive it through faith or belief. See, here's the thing. The gospel isn't like other religions. The gospel isn't, what would Jesus do? Now go do that. The gospel is, what did Jesus do? Now believe that. And there's a huge difference. Because every religion in the world is about doing. Whatever it is, whatever religion, you do these things to be acceptable to God, to be okay, to go to heaven, whatever. In some religions you can know, okay, I've crossed the line, I'm in. And most religions that say that, you never really know if you've crossed the line. And, G and Christianity is the only religion that says, no, that's all wrong. You cannot climb your way to God. God had to come all the way down to us because we can't do it for ourselves. So Jesus brings us, his birth brings us Good news of great joy, this gospel, this good news that I just explained to you. He also came to wreck religion. He also came to wreck us. And he wrecks us by wrecking our concept of goodness. And then wrecking the confidence we have in our own good. And then last thing, Jesus was born to wreck our non-decision. Follow me with this. A whole bunch of people in our culture do this. You talk to them about Jesus, and a lot of people are okay with Jesus. They like Jesus. Jesus is good. But no, he's your king. You owe him your allegiance. You should follow him with your life, not as a means of earning salvation. You should believe, and when you do that sincerely, you'll want to follow him, and you'll do that imperfectly like, like the rest of us. we have this problem with saying, well, maybe later we put off our decision. Maybe, uh, maybe when I retire, maybe when I get this next promotion, maybe when I get married, I'll do that. Maybe when, after I turn 21, because I don't know what's going to happen that night for my birthday. You know, when it, you know, maybe later, then we'll decide for Jesus. Luke 18, 23, the next verse says, but when he heard this, when the rich guy hears Jesus' response, but when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He didn't want to do it. So he leaves. He, he's sad. I was telling everybody on Sunday that, uh, that about a week prior, I had been shopping for my wife. And I don't know how it is for you guys, but for me, sometimes shopping for my wife, it's hard. Anybody with me? Any men with me on this? You know, it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard to think. When, you know, and I was going through the, kind of that struggle. And, 
Anyway, I was in a shop right here in Fremont, which is a weird thing. I'm not even on the internet, not even, I'm right here in Fremont. I was sort of looking for something else. I went into a shop in Fremont, and then I find it. It's like the perfect gift. Not exactly what I was thinking about, but close. It's like, oh, perfect gift. Nailed it. Man, I am, yeah, this is it. And I'm looking at it, I'm studying it. I hadn't really thought about it exactly like this, so I have to check it out. And they, and they say to me, hey, and they even, they even lower the price a little bit. You want this? And I'm like, yeah, I am very interested. And then you know what I said? Let, let me think about it. Stupid. Anyway, stupid. Because here's what happened. The, so then I say, I'll come back the next time they're open. Well, the next time they're open is a Monday. Monday's my day off. It's my day off, so Pam and I are Christmas shopping. And, and I don't know if you guys understand what mission creep is, but you know, you start out, you think you're just going to go to a store and be done, but then you go to a store and another store and another store. And then I'm looking at the clock and I realize I'm not going to be back in time. I'm not going to be back in Fremont before the store closes. So without Pam knowing it, I email the person at the store and I say, you know what? I'm not going to make it back before you close. And the lady says, oh, that's okay. You know, we open tomorrow or, you know, yeah, tomorrow. And so don't worry about it. But I got to tell you, there's somebody else interested since you were here. I'm like, oh, game on. You know, somebody else. So the next day, I'm like, man, I'm going right down there. So I get down there. I'm there like 10 minutes after they open. I walk in. I go, I'll take it. And they say, the other person just called in and paid by credit card. I didn't even think of that. It's like, oh, how stupid can I, I knew it was, the, I didn't just, why didn't I pull the trigger? I was looking at it going, this is perfect. The lady goes, hey, I'll, I'll cut you a deal on this. And I'm going, it's even more perfect. And then for some reason, I don't even know why, I say, let me think about it. There's nothing to think about. I lost it. Gone. Missed my opportunity. That happens with people all the time with their Christianity. You know, when infants and babies, when they tragically die, we understand from Scripture, they go immediately to heaven. But when we've grown up and we're old enough to know right from wrong or, or the concept of right and wrong, we have to decide for Jesus before we die. There is no purgatory. Some religions teach purgatory not in the Bible, anywhere. Purgatory is a river in Colorado. That's all it is. There's no purgatory. Scripture tells us it's appointed for us to die, and after that, the judgment. There is no second chances. You don't get to heaven. Think about this, because we all think this is kind of the way it is. We don't go to heaven without making a decision for Christ and say, God, I was going to come back the next day, and I was going to take it. We don't have a second chance. Scripture's clear about this. And God is not promising us tomorrow. We always think, oh, God took them home so early. Why did God do that? Or we're even mad at God. God, I didn't get to live. You know, this person, my, my parents didn't get to live till they're 90. What happened? You know, what's going God's not saying he's, he's giving you any time. God's not guaranteeing any of us that we'll make it through Christmas Day tomorrow or even make it to Christmas Day tomorrow. Be careful on the way home. He's, he's not promising us that, right? Jesus wrecks our non-decision. That's what the guy does. And so the guy leaves, and then the disciples are going, wow, you know, what's, what's going on there? 
And uh, here's what they say. And Jesus looks at him, and there's some people standing around. This guy's sad, and he starts to leave. Next verse, verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For, and then he says something that people have been debating for a few hundred years here. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, we should all tune into that because according to first century standards, we're all rich. According to world standards today, probably every single one of us in here would qualify to be in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. If you have access to a car and a house, especially if you have a job in America... Anyway, I digress. Next verse. And they who heard it then said, whoa, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, all things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Jesus said, yeah, who can be saved? You should ask that because it's impossible for us to save ourselves because we're not good people. Only God could do it. It's interesting because you hear theologians and they start debating, well, you know, uh, it, this is not so impossible. I mean, we think that there was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem that rather than a big gate that caravans went through was just for one man to go through. And they called that gate the eye of a needle. And so you'd bring your camel and it was really hard to get your camel through there. But if you dismounted and you unloaded everything off the camel and you got the camel to go down on its knees, you know, it could kind of shimmy through the gate. Zero evidence of that, of a gate being like that, or in Jerusalem are called the eye of the needle. Then other theologians came along and said, well, you know, the word for camel in the Greek is kind of similar, not the same, but kind of similar to a word for twine. So maybe the original word for twine, but some, no, don't you get Jesus's point? What's impossible, not really, really hard, what's impossible with men, possible with God. That's the whole point. And Jesus is just using an illustration, kind of like an outhouse illustration, just a lot cleaner, about a camel and a needle. Do you know that the state of Ohio has a motto, an official motto? Did you know that? How many knew that? And do you know what it is? What's the motto? Did you hear that? She's exactly right. Our state motto comes from this passage in the Bible. With God, all things are possible. It's actually a quote from when Matthew tells it at the end of the story that he says, with God, all things are possible. In 1959, our state adopted this as a motto. And you know what? And everybody knows, everybody knew then it was a quote from Matthew. And not only that, that it was basically a quote reminding us that it's impossible for us to save ourselves. And the only way that we can be saved is the Son of God came to earth in order to die for our sins and pay our penalty for sin. Because if God is truly just, like we all want him to be, like we all cry out for justice, if God is truly just, then sin must be punished, which is terrible news for me and you. But God made a way because he also loved us that he would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, we'd be born on the first Christmas day, and he would grow up to teach us, but more importantly, he would voluntarily allow himself to be tortured to death in order to pay for our sins. 
but the only way we get that accredited to our account, the only way that counts for Kevin, is for me to put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not, hey, I'm a pastor, God, plus I need Jesus. No. Hey, I'm a pretty good parent. Hey, I'm a this. Hey, I'm a that. I'm a good citizen. Jesus and Jesus alone, through faith alone. That's what Scripture's telling us. And if you haven't made that decision to know that you deserve separation from God forever because God makes the rules about goodness, not us, and we we always underestimate our badness, but I'm telling you right here, Kevin Pinkerton deserves, it would be the right thing if I spent eternity in hell separated from God. Why? Because of the sin in my life. And the same is true for you and everybody else that walked the planet except Jesus. And he died to pay for our sin. So the question is, where are you today? Have you done that? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you admitted your sin? It's kind of ABC. Admitted your sin, how serious it is to God? Have you believed in Jesus? That means you trust in Him as God that He died for you, what He did on the cross. And then if you're sincere about that, you'll commit to following Him. You'll want to follow Him. You'll want to live more like He lived. That doesn't earn our salvation. It's just a response of gratitude. And none of us get that perfect. But that's the most important decision that you need to contemplate today. Don't let another Christmas go by tomorrow without you being sure where you stand with God. Right now, I'm going to have the team come out and they're going to close us in a song. And here's what I'd like you to do. During the three or so minutes of this song, I want you to figure that out with God. You can pray to God. You don't even have to speak. I mean, God knows your every thought. You can talk to him without even any voice coming out of your mouth. Talk to God and make sure that you have made this decision. And if you haven't, it's as simple as saying, God, I admit it. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need outside help and only you can do it. And I believe that. Help me to follow you. That's what it means to become a believer. It's not about church. It's not about religious rituals. It's about one heart responding to God's gift of salvation. Let's stand together, think about that, make that decision during this song.